When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of campaign curiosities. I'm John Dickerson of Face the Nation. You've heard of the Never Trump movement, haven't you? Republicans are trying to mount a planned and coordinated effort to undermine Donald Trump's candidacy as it rolls along winning primary after primary. There aren't many templates for that strategy. 1964 is one. Though when moderate Republicans band together and fought to stop Barry Goldwater, it didn't work out very well. And it seems like that's exactly what the never Trump conservatives are doing, though they are different in one fundamental way. The stop Goldwater effort was a total failure. Those trying to stop Donald Trump are falling even short of that. We'll be back with our story after a word from our sponsor. Squarespace takes the worry sadness and fright out of website production. Sites look professionally designed regardless of skill level. There's no coding required. It's all very intuitive and the tools are easy to use. So why not get yourself a website or an online store? If you sign up, you get a free domain for a year. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com. Use the offer code WHISTLESTOP to get 10% off. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Our whistle stop today is the second day of the Republican convention in June of 1964 at the Cow Palace, an aging concrete Quonset hut looking thing outside of San Francisco. Nelson Rockefeller is standing beneath an enormous portrait of Abraham Lincoln preparing to address a raucous crowd who he is sure doesn't like him at all and which he has come to irritate further with a speech challenging Republicans to repudiate extremism and racism. These are people who have nothing in common with Americanism. The Republican Party must repudiate these people. You can hear the crowd at the end booing him, but then also chanting, we want Barry. The New York governor, Rockefeller, was repeatedly interrupted by boos. This isn't the only grief he'd been getting. Political tricksters had been ringing his telephone in his room, waking him up and just depriving him of any sleep. Talk by Rockefeller of extremists was code. He was using the language liberals used to denounce Goldwater and his followers. And so that seemed like an extra special betrayal because Rockefeller was suggesting that Goldwater's opposition to the Civil Rights Act was based on racial hatred, like the Ku Klux Klan, not Goldwater's reading of the Constitution, which he believed made the issue of how to enforce equality and protect liberty a state issue. When it came Goldwater's turn to take the podium in his acceptance speech to the roar of the crowd, it was Rockefeller he was answering when he gave those famous words about extremism and moderation. That extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice.
And let me remind you also that moderation in the pursuit of justice is no virtue. This is what a party fight sounds like. When people stand up at your nominating convention and denounce the forces that allowed you to win the nomination and criticize the people sitting in the audience, and then you fight back in your acceptance speech, that's when a party is having a real heart-to-heart. We hear about open and contested conventions, these hot days in the, in the Donald Trump conversation. We hear about the Never Trump movement. And there have been protests. But when you take out the measuring stick to see just how robust the Stop Trump effort is, you really can't find that you're measuring much compared to the history of 1964. Senator Ben Sass has said he wouldn't vote for Trump. And some conservative writers and luminaries have said they don't like him. But it's nothing close to what was going on in 1964. Now, the big difference before we get back to Goldwater is that Barry Goldwater represented a philosophy. And there was a left-right divide in the GOP back in 1964. There were some moderate Republicans and liberal Republicans. Now the battle is essentially between Trump and some moderates and conservatives. But it's not an ideological fight so much because Trump believes in a variety of things, some liberal, some moderate, some conservative. Goldwater's tone in his convention and in all his beliefs reflected the tenor of this ugliest of Republican conventions. He was telling the moderates who were facing off against the conservatives, he was telling the moderates to jump in the lake. It was a time when there was a national consensus around advancing civil rights containing communism, not eradicating it, but containing it, and expanding government in useful ways. The moderates believed that they had to do all of those things to preserve the Republican Party. Does this sound familiar? But again, these are ideological claims, not characterological ones, which are the heart of the Trump critique. The conservatives who wanted to roll back communism, not just contain it, but roll it back and contain the role of the federal government, believe not only were they saving the party, they were saving the whole American experiment. This was a breakthrough moment for conservatives in that it cracked the stranglehold that the Eastern establishment had had on Republican politics. And that's why the Goldwater-Rockefeller fight is so important. Rockefeller was the embodiment of the Eastern establishment. What happened between the moderate and the conservative wing of the Republican Party foreshadowed, of course, a lot of the battles we're having today, although with that key caveat that while this all will sound very much like the age of Trump, the ideological part of it is what's missing. Though it must be said this history started before 1964. Republicans have been in control essentially since the Civil War. Then it all starts to fall apart in the early 1900s, and then it splits apart basically along ideological lines in 1912, the progressives versus the conservatives, The party kind of bounces along. We get into the New Deal. Then after the New Deal, we have this debate, which you'll remember from your Eisenhower 1952 convention, where Thomas Dewey represents the kind of moderate liberal part. Taft represents the conservatives. Eisenhower comes in, messes everything up. The conservatives had been repeatedly frustrated by what they call the Me Too candidates. And for Goldwater, Eisenhower was one of those. He called Eisenhower's administration a dime store New Deal. Now, it's amusing, we should say here for a moment, that this whole 64 convention fracas happens at the Cow Palace because it had been in 1956 that the party had held its convention at the Cow Palace, which was the first time the party had renominated someone who would go on to have a second term since Ulysses S. Grant. So you had what was basically the high point of the party in 1956, and now in 1964, a totally new group comes in, breaks off the successful part of the party that Eisenhower had been behind, And from that cracking a part of the party creates the conditions that would then lead to Ronald Reagan 
and the conservative ascent. In 1964, these conservatives had their moment. He was a limited government conservative, very strong on national defense. Goldwater was. At one point, he mused about dropping a low-yield nuclear bomb on the Chinese supply lines in Vietnam. He was supported, Goldwater was, by the head of the John Birch Society, and he refused to repudiate the supporters uh, of the John Birch Society, and he defended Joe McCarthy and his fight against the communists. The Rockefeller view, what did it mean being the establishment, essentially meant using government to solve some of the cultural pathologies, and he believed in experts and not the kind of simple gumption Western. It can be solved with a, a little spit and shoe polish, which was the Goldwater view. The fight between these two wings, between Goldwater and Rockefeller, had its birth, really, in the California Convention. When they had fought, the two of them had fought through the primary process, but when they got to California, it got very ugly. And that's why these conservatives in the audience were booing Rockefeller so loudly. It had been so brutal. Two weeks before the California primary, Rockefeller had been up 13 points. He had sent a mailer out to all Californians that asked, who do you want in the room with the H-bomb button? That, of course, was the beginning of a long-standing critique of Goldwater that he was crazy and get every, was going to get everybody into a nuclear war. Rockefeller's personal problems and uh, his affair and marriage caused that collapse of his campaign in California, which we'll get back to in a, in a future episode. But they had just come out of this ugly California convention, and now everybody's back in California at the Cow Palace about to fight it out. The biggest ideological battle, we should say, between these two camps in the Republican Party was over the Civil Rights Act, the 1964 Civil Rights Act. 27 of 33 Republicans had voted for the Civil Rights Act. Goldwater was not one of those. He voted against it, as I mentioned, thinking it was a state's rights issue. And this is not a small deal. In 1964, there are riots going on. And essentially, the critique from Republican moderates on Goldwater was that he was playing footsie with the racists, that there were racists and then anxious white voters, not just Southern whites, but whites in the North and the Midwest, who were worried about the speed of change in America and the social unrest and change as a result of these changing times, and that Goldwater was playing with them too easily. And this spills over into the convention where Goldwater's critics saw an attempt to court the same vote in the platform. There was a plank in the platform that denounced what it called, quote, federally sponsored reverse discrimination. Not long after Goldwater won in California, the Stop Goldwater movement picks up. He had the most delegates, but not enough, and they weren't bound to him yet, unlike the delegates who were pledged to Trump. So the big fears about Goldwater would be familiar to your ears today if you hear complaints about Donald Trump. The argument was that Goldwater was authoritarian, that he made unhinged threats about the use of military power, he'd split the country along racial lines, and that he'd doom Republicans down the ballot. Senator Ken Keating, a Republican running in New York, said he would not run as a Republican against Bobby Kennedy, but he'd run as an independent. Hugh Scott, who you'll remember from the draft Eisenhower movement, who was the chairman of the Republican Party for a time, said that if Goldwater were nominated, he'd bring down 30 Republicans with him that November in the Senate. Goldwater responded in a way that should sound familiar. He, he said that, quote, the Republican establishment is desperate to defeat me. They can't stand having someone they can't control. Literally, as I walked in to record this today, Trump was on the TV saying, quote, the establishment, they don't know what they're doing, which is one of his eight billion different attacks against the establishment. Hard to imagine a politician more suited to the anti-establishment hero role than Goldwater. He looked like he was built out of some desert stone in Arizona, an Air Force pilot who, who also looked like he'd left the window open on all those flights and it had chiseled his face. He would not be mistaken for an East Coast banker. Fifteen Republican governors were breakfasting on June 7th before the convention at the Cleveland Sheraton and they were trying to hatch a plot. 
The governors, all of them more moderate in part because they had to deal with a lot of the urban issues and crises that gave them a different kind of perspective. If anybody was going to stop Goldwater, it was going to be the governors. Governor Romney of Michigan, George Romney, who you may remember from one of our early episodes, put out a very strong statement denouncing Goldwater. So imagine this. This is a group of Republican governors all denouncing Goldwater who's on his way to be the nominee. Nothing like this has happened in Republican politics yet. Nothing close. As they were discussing the options, Governor Scranton of Pennsylvania, who was also considering a run, walked in. Now, why was Scranton important? Well, a lot of people thought he was going to run for president himself. And in fact, he'd gone to have a conversation with Eisenhower about this idea, and he left the conversation with Eisenhower thinking that he'd been encouraged to run. The Pennsylvania governor went and booked himself on Face the Nation, a program we know all listeners are watching or setting their DVR to. But then before he went on Face the Nation, he got a call from Eisenhower who said, whoops, I hope I didn't give you the impression that you should go run for president. This, by the way, happens like 50 times in the history of Eisenhower. He's constantly saying things to people and then saying he didn't say them. This is a part of his genius, I suppose, or has been argued that it's his genius. But it really caught Scranton in a twister because then he had to go and face the nation with nothing to say and then went on TV and said nothing. And it's among the great bomb performances on a Sunday show is the Scranton performance. And he dispirits all of his fellow Republican governors who thought he was going to go and throw his hat into the ring. And so now they look kind of pathetic and lame and without the kind of guts that Goldwater was showing. And of course, we see throughout this story the gap between what they want to do and what they can do. This was a perfect example of that. And we see that today in the the Stop Trump movement. There's a lot of talk and a lot of angst behind the scenes, but no one's much doing anything about it, which confirms the underlying critique of both Goldwater and Trump, which is that the people in charge are too chicken to do what needs to be done. So after Scranton is a swing and a miss on Face the Nation, the governors all start looking to each other. And this is basically reminds me of the story that is, I think, true. Rockefeller tells this story that during the California convention, his aide, Stu Spencer, turned to him and said, Governor, I think it's time to call in the Eastern establishment, to which Rockefeller responded, you're looking at it, buddy. I'm all that's left. Before we go any further, I should credit two of the big sources for these accounts. One is Rick Perlstein's uh, Before the Storm, Barry Goldwater and the Unmaking of the American Consensus, and also Richard Norton Smith on his own terms, A Life of Nelson Rockefeller, two sources that are really heavily drawn on here. So then Nixon shows up and he tries to get Romney to jump in the race. Now, Romney's suspicious that Nixon wants him to jump in the race because he he thinks Nixon's pushing him out into the front so that he gets clobbered and the conservatives hate him and that creates space for Nixon. But Nixon called a press conference the next day and said, looking to the future of the party, it would be a tragedy if Senator Goldwater's views, as previously stated, were not challenged and repudiated. So now you have a bunch of governors coming out against Goldwater. You have the previous vice president and party nominee in 1960 coming out. I guess the closest that would be would be to Mitt Romney. So just like today with Donald Trump, the anti-Goldwater forces were frantic and adamant, but without a real leader with much direction. New York Senator Jacob Javits, a moderate Republican, said that Goldwater's victory would wrench the social order out of its sockets. Then, with all of this pressure building up the system, Scranton jumps in. The nation, and indeed the world, waits to see if another proud political banner, which is our own, will falter, grow limp, and collapse in the dust. As the Republican Party... A great many of our fellow citizens are asking, outlived its usefulness, 
Of course the answer is no. Governor Scranton continued, quote, Lincoln would cry out in pain if we sold out our principles, but he would laugh out with scorn if we threw away an election. His dramatic words brought the crowd he was speaking to to a frenzy. Scranton continued that Goldwater was wreaking chaos and uproar, talking off the top of his head, had a cruel misunderstanding of how the American economy works. Because of the havoc that has been spread across the national landscape by the present frontrunner, the Republican Party wonders how it will make clear to the American people that it does not oppose Social Security, the United Nations, human rights, and sane nuclear policy. So now Scranton basically becomes Rockefeller. Rockefeller's lost in the primary hunt, and now Scranton has jumped in and is going to try and work it out at the convention. But they are not budging from Barry, and this will all sound familiar to those of you who've read what Trump supporters say. Eugene Patterson of the Atlantic Constitution described the Goldwater legions this way, quote, a federation of the fed up, dismayed by moral laxity, greed, the tax collector, and the erosion of yesterday's individualistic aspirational culture by social engineers and legislators masquerading as judges. Goldwater was getting memos and telegrams that said things like, I will vote for you if my vote alone is the only vote you obtain. Another admirer said, I'd give Barry my blood and the marrow from my bones. Phyllis Schlafly, who is one of Goldwater's great supporters, did what is again familiar from today when there were polls showing that the American public disagreed with Goldwater on eight out of 10 items. She said that Gallup calls up and asked a lot of questions of a very few people, she said, in order to, quote, come up with answers that please the New York kingmakers. Bill Buckley called the polling numbers crazy figures that had been manipulated. So now the establishment is bigger. It's the pollsters. It's the media. It's a conspiracy. Well, Scranton tries to turn this conspiracy into a reality, and he goes searching for votes. He goes through North Carolina. He goes through Illinois. He goes all across the country, and it isn't happening. The conservatives are not budging from Barry Goldwater to go to Scranton. So by the time they get to the convention, where the Goldwater girls are dressed in their sombreros and their tasseled boots, Scranton is still trying to scratch together some delegates. But the delegates who have arrived, who are in support of Goldwater, are being put through a military precision. They had a buddy system whereby they were constantly in touch with somebody from the campaign to make sure that they weren't turned, to make sure that somebody from the Scranton campaign or, or from Rockefeller's land wouldn't try and convince them to move off of Goldwater. They were even told at one point to look out for the fine attentions of young ladies who might be trying to sway them off their opinion or put them in a compromising position, which would make them susceptible to blackmail and to have their vote forced away from them. They were monitored everywhere they went to and from their hotels. And the Goldwater campaign, in addition to setting up this incredible security apparatus that both protected Goldwater, but also maintained discipline over the Goldwater delegates to make sure they wouldn't be turned, was the communications setup that they put in place. And the reason communications was so important at these contested conventions, and will be if there's one in Cleveland in 2016, is that you got to make sure nobody's mind is being changed. And if it's being changed, you need to know right away so you can go change it back. And so the Goldwater group installed in the Cow Palace a state-of-the-art series of telephones, but then also backup systems with walkie-talkies and UHF and VHF, and there were Pinkerton security men guarding the whole thing. Lawyers were armed with tape recorders and Polaroid cameras ready to file 
suits if anything was uh, if there was any sabotage from the enemy discovered. And as the convention is going on, Governor Rhodes of Ohio, who'd been a favorite son candidate in the campaign and who Scranton had thought might be able to help him out, turns and gives his votes to Goldwater. What starts to happen is what we start to see now, which is the idea that Goldwater might have a movement behind him and that all of this criticism and all of this gnashing of teeth was missing the point, that there was a kind of Dewey defeats Truman national set of voters out there who would rise up behind Goldwater, that he had tapped into something that wasn't just local to the party, wasn't just about conservatives, but that there was a great movement. Rhodes had been, the governor of Ohio, had been against Goldwater, but now he flips and Scranton gets none of his votes. It got pretty hot and heavy at the convention and around it. There's an account where Henry Cabot Lodge was accosted by a man who said, I voted for you in 1960, but never again. You're terrible. And Lodge shot back, you're terrible too. He returned to his suite and looked over the delegate count and said, what in God's name has happened to the Republican Party? I hardly know any of these people. Meanwhile, outside of the convention hall, protesters from the Congress of Racial Equality were trying to block the delegates from getting into the hall. There was also a 40,000-person demonstration in San Francisco, the largest civil rights demonstration since the March on Washington. And what was intriguing was, again, with this notion of a backlash in support of Goldwater, there was the view among some that the quote-unquote Goldwater riots would create a situation in which there would be a backlash against the rioters. And in fact, the White House and a number of mainline civil rights groups had suggested that groups working for civil rights and equality should not protest Goldwater for fear of the backlash it would create, therefore create sympathy for Goldwater and therefore give him the election. This is interesting because there is some evidence that the protests at the Trump rallies are in fact helping him with his voters. Now, that's quite a big difference. The argument with the Goldwater riots is that it would help Goldwater in the general. The voters that Trump is being helped with, of course, are in the Republican primaries. The Hitler analogies that we see today so often, well, they were in this uh, race too. The Friday before the Monday convention opening, church and labor groups sponsored this 40,000 strong civil rights march. And there were signs that said Goldwater for Fuhrer. Freedom is dead. Hitler was sincere too. There was a sign that said Barry go home with a swastika in the O. But the Hitler analogies weren't just used against Goldwater. Phyllis Schlafly, the Goldwater supporter, said, quote, the chief propaganda organ of the secret kingmakers, the New York Times, and the, quote, popular national magazine were all goose-stepping to prevent Republicans from selecting their obvious candidate. The papers, of course, had all lined up behind Scranton. So Goldwater's got the delegates all wired. He's got a great communications network. But the one communication network he didn't have control over was the national television network. And the networks had covered the 60 convention, but they turned the 64 convention into something like covering a moon landing. They had, for the first time, those elevated glass broadcast booths high above the floor. They put in lots and lots of energy to covering the goings-on on the convention floor at the Cow Palace. And this was the final 
shot for Scranton. In his trip through the country, going to North Carolina and Illinois, trying to scare up some delegates, he'd been a total failure. So what he, what he and other moderate forces were going to try to do was embarrass Goldwater and his people in front of the television cameras in the hopes of sending delegates out of embarrassment to vote for them and not to vote for Goldwater. The first effort was directed at the Platform Committee, where Scranton and Rockefeller forces brought up a series of rules supporting civil rights, denouncing extremism. All of them were voted down. Seventy percent of the convention delegates acting on Goldwater's instructions had voted down the plank affirming the constitutionality of the recent Civil Rights Act. And on this extremism issue is why Rockefeller had chosen, it's where he chose to make his stand. And that was when he comes to the podium to make his five-minute speech. Now, of course, the Goldwater people know he's going to create havoc. And so they want to push him out of prime time. They get what the Scranton Rockefeller guys are up to. So Melvin Laird, who is a congressman from Wisconsin, who is on the Goldwater team, asks that the platform be read into the record from the podium. So that's 8,500 words. It took 90 minutes pushing the anti-Goldwater forces who were going to speak out of prime time. By the way, an amazing thing that they were even allowed up to a podium these days. If you were opposing Donald Trump, you're not going to get a chance to speak at the podium. I don't think, although if it's a contested convention and he doesn't have the nomination, then he doesn't control the speakers and he doesn't control the speeches. And that'll be one of the great headaches for the Republican Party is who to let at the podium for these speeches and then how crazy that will be because you'll be essentially televising the chaos to the world. Well, in the end, Goldwater just totally swamps Scranton. He gets 883 delegates and Scranton gets 214. It was a turning point in the conservative movement. And Pat Buchanan tells a great story from Richard Nixon, who says, Buchanan, if you ever hear of a group getting together to stop X, be sure to put your money on X. Basically, Nixon's argument was anybody who's got enough power from the people to require a movement to stop them has the power of the people, and that's the thing you want to be on the side of, because ultimately it's the people and not the establishment who give parties their energy. But this was also a turning point in the larger election. Lyndon Johnson would capitalize on the unrest at the, in the Republican ranks and make a famous TV spot where an actor portrays himself as a disgruntled Republican, running his hands through his hair, gnashing his teeth, and generally looking put upon this fellow who looks like Elliot Richardson, by the way, as he talks about what he might have done if he had been a Republican at that convention in San Francisco. I don't know just why they wanted to call this a confession. I, I certainly don't feel guilty about being a Republican. I've always been a Republican. My father is, his father was, the whole family is a Republican family. I voted for Dwight Eisenhower the first time I ever voted. I voted for Nixon the last time. When we come to Senator Goldwater, now it seems to me we're up against a, a very different kind of a man. This man scares me. Now, maybe I'm wrong. A friend of mine has said to me, listen, just because uh, a man sounds a little irresponsible during a campaign doesn't mean he's going to act irresponsibly. You know that theory that the White House makes the man. I don't buy that. You know what I think makes a president? I mean, aside from his, his judgment, his experience, are the men behind him, his, 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 uh, his advisors, the cabinet. And so many men with strange ideas are, are working for Goldwater. You, you'll hear a lot about what these guys are against. They seem to be against just about everything. But what are they for? 
The hardest thing for me about this whole campaign is to sort out one Goldwater statement from another. A, a reporter will go to Senator Goldwater and he'll say, Senator, on such and such a day, you said, and I quote, blah, 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 whatever it is, end quote. And then Goldwater says, well, I wouldn't put it that way. I, I can't follow that. I, was he serious when he did put it that way? Is he serious when he says he wouldn't put it that way? I, I, I just don't get it. Uh, a president ought to mean what he says. President Johnson, now, Johnson at least is, is, is talking about facts. He says, look, we got the, the tax cut bill, and because of that you get to carry home X number of dollars more every payday. We got the nuclear test ban, and, and because of that there's X percent less radioactivity in the food. But, but Goldwater, often you can't, I, I, I can't figure out just what Goldwater means by the things she says. I read now where he says, a, a wave... A craven fear of death is sweeping across America. What is that supposed to mean? If he means that people don't want to fight a nuclear war, he's right. I don't. When I read some of these things that Goldwater says about uh, total victory, I get a little worried, you know? I, I wish... I wish I was as sure that Goldwater is against war as I am that he's against some of these other things. I wish I could believe that he has the imagination to, to be able to just shut his eyes and picture what this country would look like after a nuclear war. Sometimes I, I wish I'd been at that convention in San Francisco. I mean, I wish I'd been a delegate. I really do, because I, I would have fought, you know? And I wouldn't have worried so much about party unity, because if you unite behind a man you don't believe in, it's a lie. I tell you, those people who got control of that convention, who are they? I mean, when the head of the Ku Klux Klan, when all these weird groups come out in favor of the candidate of my party, either they're not Republicans or I'm not, I thought about just not voting in this election, just staying home, but you can't do that because that's that's saying you you don't care who wins and and I do care. I think my party made a bad mistake in San Francisco, and I'm going to have to vote against that mistake on the third of November. Vote for President Johnson on November third. The stakes are too high for you to stay home. Our producer here at Whistle Stop is Mike Volo. Our executive producer is Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is the central chief content officer of Panoply. Whistle Stop is a part of the Panoply network. Check out the entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Whistle Stop Cracker Jack researcher is Brian Rosenwald, who wouldn't be viewed by no one. He is the consensus candidate. Squarespace, don't forget, they're our sponsor. They make it real easy to set up your own website. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com. Use the offer code WHISTLESTOP. Get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, build it beautiful. That's it for me. I'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening. I'm John Dickerson. John Dickerson.